0: I want to welcome you once again to our online service. My name's Alistair, the lead pastor of St. Peter's Fireside, and we're really glad you've chosen to spend some time with us wherever you may be today. Palm Sunday is usually a little bit out of the ordinary, and this year is no exception. We can't hand you a palm. Uh, our children can't run around in the service, even if they are running around chaotically in our homes. You know, this is supposed to be a day that's more celebratory, but it feels harder to celebrate. And right now, I don't know about you, but at least for me, everything feels distance. You know, yes, we can remain connected through technology, but for every Zoom meeting and every phone call and every ping of a text afterwards, I just feel the distance. And I long to be physically present with you, with my friends, with my family, with other people. I long to just walk with some freedom in the regular places that I do life. So technology, as helpful as it is, isn't helping me prepare to celebrate today. If I'm honest, I don't really feel like crying out, Hosanna, I want to join the Psalms and say something like, how long, O Lord? That is until I remember, Hosanna means to save, to rescue. So I can cry out to Jesus and say, come and save, show us your rescuing Power And in that sense, maybe I'm more ready for Palm Sunday than I thought. And maybe you are too. If we pay attention to our passage, the passages that are often associated with Palm Sunday, they're not always celebratory. It's not only shouts of joy and a happy donkey and the anticipated inauguration of a king. Palm Sunday is actually one of those days where celebration and grief go hand in hand, where joy and where lament can exist together. And so whatever your experience is, this season or even today, I want you to know it's okay. You don't have to try to feel what someone else is feeling. Instead, bring your experience before the Lord as we meet him today, as we celebrate, but also lament the realities that have changed Palm Sunday for us this year. As we dig into our passage in Luke, I want to look at three things. The first is directions, celebration, and then lament. Directions, celebration, and then lament. So let's begin with directions. Like you and like many people, I can't stand directions that are way too detailed, but not specific enough. You know, the person who says, look, when you're driving... After five minutes, once you're up the hill, not the big hill, the kind of smaller hill, when you're about halfway and after you've passed three trees, you'll notice a small mailbox. That means you're almost there, but you're not there yet. So keep driving a little longer till you see the third yellow house, then take a right. And once you see the tree, not the first tree, but it's like the fifth or sixth tree and there's an owl's nest, then you're there. These are the sort of directions that are making my hair go white. And one of my parents, I won't say which one, mom, uh, gives these sort of directions all of the time. And they drive me nuts. And Luke's account of Palm Sunday begins with Jesus giving these very detailed and yet vague directions. He says in verse 30 through 31, he says this to his disciples, go into the village in front of you. Where on entering, you'll find a colt tied on which no one has ever yet sat. Untie it and bring it here. And if anyone asks you, why are you untying it? You shall say this, the Lord has need of it. And so the disciples go and and follow Jesus's directions, trusting that at some point they're going to find a donkey somewhere. And then it all unfolds exactly as Jesus said it would. The village, the donkey, the surprisingly compliant donkey owner. I mean, I would love to be a fly on the wall when the disciples just straight up take someone's donkey. And the only explanation they can offer is the Lord has need of it. But it all worked out. It all happened exactly as Jesus said it would. And the question we need to ask is why? Why? Before Jesus enters into Jerusalem, why is this story here at all? Why these details about getting a donkey? Matthew's account of this story actually gives us an explanation. This took place to fulfill what was spoken through the prophet. Say to daughter Zion, see your king comes to you gentle and riding on a donkey and on a colt, the foal of a donkey. This prophecy from Zechariah was loaded with big expectation for ancient Israel. This is one of those passages they would read and see a promise of the Messiah. A promise of this king that would come from the line of David who would establish an everlasting kingdom. But why a donkey? I mean, if you're going to make a grand appearance, if you're going to choose a mode of transportation to show that you're a king, to show that you're establishing an everlasting kingdom, why a donkey? You know, why not rent the ancient equivalent of the stretched limo? Well, first, Jesus has better taste than that. And second, it helps to know that in the ancient world, uh, when a king was going off to war, he would ride a stallion. But when a king was riding in peace, he would take a donkey. And so the Messiah arriving on a donkey is a sign that this king is coming to establish a kingdom of peace, a peaceable kingdom. And in the hebraic mindset, it's important to know that peace doesn't just mean the absence of conflict. It's bigger than that. When you hear the word peace in scripture, you should think shalom. You should think of a wholeness and a wellness, a well-being that permeates every person in everything. Try to think of a moment in your life where everything felt right. Everything felt calm. Everything felt as it should be. One of those moments where you want to hold on to it and you know in that moment that it's a good and lasting moment. Shalom is when those moments become the baseline of all human existence. That's shalom. That's biblical peace. And enter Jesus. He's about to enter into Jerusalem. But before he does, he asks his disciples to get a donkey. And they could probably feel their hearts beating a little faster, their pulse going and racing, their expectations soaring because Jesus is saying to them, he is the Messiah and he's about to show everyone that he really is who he claims to be and he's going to establish this long awaited kingdom. All their longings for the world to be set right. For Israel to be uh, liberated out of oppression and restored. For God to be present among his people. It's rising up within them. It's coursing through their veins. This ancient ache in their bones. And it all comes out in the form of celebration. So let's move to our second point, celebration. Now the time has finally arrived. Jesus has slowly in his public ministry been moving toward Jerusalem. And now here he is in the capital of Israel where the temple is, Jerusalem. And he enters the city on a donkey and not just any donkey, but a prophetically loaded donkey, which is the best kind of donkey. And we read in verses 36 through 38. And as he rode along, they spread their cloaks on the road. As he was drawing near, already on the way down the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of his disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works that they had seen, saying, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. There's no confusion about it. People are making the way For a king, they cry out, blessed is the king. They take off their cloaks. They lay them before him. Joy starts pouring out into the streets. And the whole crowd of disciples acknowledges this really is the Messiah. The one sent from God who will bring this long expected peace. And so they sense they're on the brink of a revolution. But this isn't everybody's reaction. We read in verses 39 through 40 that some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. He answered, I tell you, if they were silent, the very stones would cry out. This is a staggering little exchange. Essentially, the religious elites of Jesus' day say, Shut your disciples up. They're making a ruckus. You're not the Messiah. Put an end to this. And Jesus says, even if I did, the most inanimate object of creation would still praise me. Because Jesus is more than Israel's king. He's the king of kings. He's the name above every other name. He is the creator and sustainer of the universe. He's none other than God among us, with us, as us. So even if Jesus squashed the praise of his disciples, that would not put an end to his praise because as we read throughout the scriptures, all of creation, including us, is made to praise God as king. Isaiah, the prophet, puts it like this, the mountains and the hills will burst into song before you and all the trees of the field will clap their hands. So can Jesus rebuke his disciples? Not a chance because they are doing what they were made to do and all of creation was made to do in recognizing Jesus as king, in rejoicing over the fact that he has come. They are actually fulfilling their purpose and destiny as people because all of creation, including us, including you, was made to praise God. And the disciples, their ache for the Messiah to come has given way to joy because the Messiah has arrived. He's entered into Jerusalem after all these years of waiting. If we sit for a moment with our ache, the ache for God to heal the world, the ache for the poor in our own city who can't self-isolate because they don't have homes, who can't frequently wash their hands because they don't have access to facilities, who may not even have access to food, let alone shelter. The ache for Italy, their loss and their mourning and their tragedy. The ache for India, tens of millions of migrant workers who are now unemployed and can't socially distance. The ache for refugees around the world who are incredibly vulnerable to this disease because they live in makeshift camps. The ache for our neighbors in the United States. The ache of our own experiences in COVID-19. The ache to be with people to help somehow, but that sinking feeling of powerlessness. We must recognize That within our ache, there is something that will not be resolved once this pandemic passes. Within our ache, there is something that will not be resolved once this pandemic passes. There is a groaning, a deep desire to see things made right. And this ache will only fully give way to joy when Jesus finally returns and makes all things new and sets all things right. And until that good day when he does return, we're a part of creation as the Apostle Paul describes it. We know that the whole world has been groaning as in the pains of childbirth right up until the present time. And so as we remember Palm Sunday, we remember that the disciples are seeing the beginning of the end of this groaning this ache, this desire for God to fix things and heal things and make things right. And their long awaited hope is right before their very eyes. And so no wonder they're filled with joy. But joy doesn't have the final say in this passage. So let's move on to our last point, lament. Jesus enters into the city. It seems like everything's going to plan. People recognize that he's the Messiah. They're ready to receive him as king. They're filled with joy. But how does Jesus feel? Not as we would expect. We look at verses 41 and 42 and we might be surprised. He drew near and saw the city and he wept over it, saying, would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for peace, but now they are hidden from your eyes. Jesus weeps over the city. He weeps. He weeps because they know they're not going to truly receive him as king. They don't see that he's the king who's come to establish peace. As he'll go on to say in verse 44, you did not recognize the time of God's coming to you. And he knows he's going to be rejected by his own people. Later in the gospel, he says, Jerusalem, how often I've longed to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, and you were not willing. Jesus weeps because he knows Good Friday is around the bend. He knows that the shouts of Hosanna will be replaced with cries, crucify him. He weeps. He laments over the city and its people. And although his disciples were shouting for joy, not everyone did. Not everybody was willing. For example, the Pharisees, they couldn't celebrate his arrival. If anything, they saw the arrival of Jesus as an encroachment on their territory. If anything, his arrival pushed them further into their plot to have him destroyed, to have him murdered. And Jesus says it's because they didn't recognize the time of God's coming. They couldn't see it. It was hidden from their eyes. And so I have to ask, is Jesus hidden from your eyes? Do you see him as king? As God come among us? Now, maybe it's helpful to consider what are some of the things that can cloud our sight of Jesus. For the Pharisees, in some sense, it was the status quo. They were influential. They were respected. They were the people who had all the answers, who lived the right way, who had a sense of control over reality. If they were to see Jesus for who he is, they would have to take second place. They would have to bend their knee to him. They would have to acknowledge that only Jesus has the answers. Only Jesus is the way. Only Jesus has control over reality. So how does your own status quo keep you from seeing Jesus? How does your desire for control and mastery over life cloud your sight of him? But I think there's another way in which we can cease to see Jesus. Because I suspect some of the people in the crowd who were crying out, Hosanna, were in part of the same crowd that a few days later were crying out, crucify him. So how is it that we can go from adoration of Jesus to rejection of Jesus. Well, one way that this can happen is when we meet Jesus with our expectations and we expect him to fulfill them. You know, we see him only through the lens of what he can do for us. And when he doesn't meet our expectations, when he doesn't show up the way we wanted, when he doesn't resolve the problems on the timeline we desired, we turn from him. Now today we might not shout crucify him, But instead, we abandon him. We give up on him. We get bored with him. We turn to other solutions. But at the end of the day, on a deeper level, it's because we're not really ready to give up control. We want Jesus to do what he can do for us the way we want. We don't want to bend our knee and let him be king and Lord and have control. But if we have eyes to see, if we can recognize that Jesus is God among us as the person of Jesus, here's what we see. Jesus doesn't stand above us, wagging his finger at us. Jesus weeps. Jesus weeps over our brokenness and over the world because Jesus longs for all people to be reconciled to him to know the peace of his kingdom and to spread the good news of his peace throughout the world before he returns. And I find this immensely comforting at this time. You know, we don't worship a God who's unmoved by us. We worship a God who weeps over the world he created, who meets us within the world and shares his lament with us. He weeps over our pain and our suffering and the hardness of, of heart that he sees in his children, and we can weep with him. We can lament with him. Last week, the New Testament scholar N.T. Wright wrote an article for Time. It's really helpful. You should look it up. And he discusses lament. And here's something he said that struck me. Lament is what happens when people ask why and don't get an answer. It's where we get to when we move beyond our self-centered worry about our sins and failings, and look more broadly at the suffering of the world. The point of lament, woven thus into the fabric of the biblical tradition, is not just that it's an outlet for our frustration, sorrow, loneliness, and sheer inability to understand what is happening or why. The mystery of the biblical story is that God also laments. God laments. We see it here in our passage. Jesus weeps, and we can lament with him. And in fact, there's many people lamenting right now. Some because of COVID-19 and the pain of social distancing measures, some people because of death, some people because of famine, some people because of oppression. And anyone who's lamenting is doing so because we still live in a creation that's broken and groaning and waiting to be healed. And so lament is deeply appropriate in a creation that's still crying out for restoration. And though our every ache will one day give way to joy when God's everlasting kingdom of peace is established. In the meantime, Jesus meets us. He shares tears with us and invites us to lament over the brokenness and pain of the world, especially the pain we're experiencing at this time. And that's the good news of Palm Sunday. We're not the only disciples who feel like the world is unraveling, like it's a ball of yarn on a downhill trajectory. Think about the disciples in this passage. They're overwhelmed with joy. They can't believe that the Messiah is finally here. And shortly thereafter, he's crucified. It would have felt like everything was unraveling. And perhaps that's why the story of the donkey is at the beginning of this passage. The disciples would look back and remember that Jesus knew exactly what was going to happen. He could say, go to the village. There'll be a donkey there. Tell the owner the Lord has need of it. And it all happened exactly as he said it would. So perhaps when our expectations, when our hopes, when our preferences for how things should go, how human history should unfold, how God should act in this world doesn't make sense or even when God's actions defy our expectations or beyond our comprehension. Jesus remains in control. Jesus knows what's going on. He remains the author of life, the sustainer of the universe. He is directing the world's affairs, and he will one day return and establish his everlasting kingdom of peace. He knows what he is doing. And although the kingdom of God does not come the way we expect, it will surely arrive. Because when Jesus says, go to the village, get me a donkey, there's no protest. It happens. And so when Jesus says, behold, I make all things new, we can only assume, we can only trust that all of creation, all of suffering, all of our tears, even the enemy of death itself will not protest, will not be able to stand in the way of Jesus finally making a new heavens and a new earth and establishing his kingdom of everlasting peace. And it's okay if this hope fills your heart with joy today. It's okay. But it's also okay if you're not ready for that joy. That if right now all you can do is lament, but it's okay because the two can exist together. You don't have to choose one or the other. We can have great joy because our king has come and he's given us glimpses of how good his kingdom will be when it finally arrives in its fullness. But he's also shown us that in the waiting, he's comfortable with weeping and he'll lament with us in such a time as this. Let's pray. Father, we give you thanks that you're with us, that you've not given up on the creation that you love, and that you hear the groans of all the earth, all the suffering, all the pain, even the gnawing hopelessness. We pray, come, Lord Jesus. Have mercy on us. Weep with us. Lament with us. Please show up. Please bring your peace. Please bring your healing. Please change this world. It's in your name we pray. Amen.